Chapter 7 of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahaye Payne. Chapter 7 The Armada Galleon of Tobermory Bay. Between the western highlands of Scotland and the remote cloudy Hebrides, lies the large island of Mull on the sound of that name. Its bold headlands are crowned with the ruins of grey castles that were once the strongholds of the clans of the Macleans and the Macdonalds. Along these shores and waters, one generation after another of kilted fighting men, savages red Indians, raided and burned and slew in feuds whose memories are crowded with tragedy and romance. Near where Mull is washed by the Atlantic, and the sound opens toward the thoroughfares of the deep-sea shipping, is the pleasant town of Tobermory, which in the Gaelic means Mary's Well. The bay that it faces is singularly beautiful, almost landlocked, and of a depth sufficient to shelter a fleet. Into this bay of Tobermory there sailed one day a great galleon of Spain, belonging to that mighty armada which had been shattered and driven in frantic flight by English seamen with hearts of oak under Drake, Hawkins, Howard, Seymour, and Martin Frobisher, names to make the blood beat faster even now. The year was 1588, in the reign of Elizabeth, long, long ago. This fugitive galleon, aforetime so tall and stately and ornate, was racked and leaking, her painted sails and tatters, her Spanish sailors sick, weary, starved, after escaping from the English Channel and faring far northward around the stormy Orkneys. Many of her sister ships had crashed ashore on the Irish coast, while the surviving remnant of this magnificent flotilla wallowed for lonely home. Seeking provisions, repairs, respite from the terrors of the implacable ocean, the galleon Florencia dropped anchor in Tobermory Bay, and there she laid her bones. With her, it is said, was a lost great store of treasure in golden plate, and ever since 1641, for more than two and a half centuries, the search for these riches has been carried on at intervals, more than likely, if you should go in one of Donald McBrain's steamers through the Sound of Mull next summer, and a delightful excursion it is, you would find an up-to-date suction dredge and a corps of divers employed by the latest syndicate to finance the treasure hunt, ransacking the mud of Tobermory Bay in the hope of finding Spanish gold of the Florencia. Many thousands have been vainly spent in the quest, but the lure of lost treasure has a fascination of its own, and after all the failure of Scotch and English seekers, American enterprise and capital have now taken hold of this romantic task. With the history of the Florencia Galleon and her treasure is intimately interwoven the stirring chronicle of the deeds of the Macleans of Mull and the Macdonalds of Islay and Skye. Out of the echoing past, the fanfare of Spanish trumpets is mingled with the skirl of the pipes, and the rapier of Toledo flashes beside the claymore of the Highlanders. The story really begins long before the doomed galleon sought refuge in Tobermory Bay. There were island chieftains of the clan MacLean, busy at cutting the throats of their enemies, as far remote in time as the 13th century. But their turbulent pedigrees need not concern our narrative until the warlike figure of Latchlin Moore MacLean, Big Latchlin, steps into its pages in the year of 1576. It was then that he came of age and set out from the court of James VI at Edinburgh, where he had been brought up, to claim his inherited estates of Mole. His wicked stepfather, Hector, met him in the castle of Dwart, whose stout walls and battlements still loom not far from Tobermary, and tried to set him aside with false and foolish words. The astute youth perceived that if he were to come into his own, he must be up and doing, 
wherefore he speedily mustered friends and led them into Castle Dwart by night. They carried his scheming stepfather to the island of Kal, and there beheaded him, which made Latchland's title clear to the lands of his ancestors. The next to mistake the medal of young Latchland Moor was no less than Colin Campbell, sixth Earl of Argyll, head of a family very powerful in the Highlands even to this day. He was for seizing the estate by force, after plotting to no purpose, and Angus MacDonald of Dunnywig was persuaded to help him with several hundred fighting men. Thus began a feud between the Macleans and the MacDonalds, which a few years later was to evolve the great galleon Florencia of the Armada. Argyle and his force wasted the lands of Latchland with fire and sword, and besieged one of his strongholds with twelve hundred followers. War thus begun was waged without mercy, and one bloody episode followed on the heels of another. At the head of his clansmen, Latchland swept into Argyle's country and made him cry quits. This was a large achievement, and the spirited young lord of Dwart was hailed as a highland chief worthy of the king's favor. He went to court, was flattered by the great men there, and became the hero of as pretty and gallant a romance as a heart could wish. The king arranged that he should marry the daughter of the powerful earl of Athol. Latcham could not say his sovereign nay. The contract arranged, he started for Mull to make ready for the wedding, but chanced to visit on the way William Cunningham, earl of Glencairn, at his castle overlooking the Clyde. Cards were played to while away the evening, and Latchland's partner was one of the daughters of the host. It so happened that the game was changed, and the players again cut for partners. At this, another daughter, the fair Margaret Cunningham, whispered to her sister that if the handsome Highland chief had been her partner, she would not have hazarded the loss of him by cutting anew. Latchland overheard the compliment, as perhaps he was meant to do, and so far as he was concerned, hearts were trumps from that moment. He wooed and won Margaret Cunningham and married her forthwith. The king was greatly offended. What cared this happy man? He carried his bride to Dwart and laughed at his foes. The quiet life at home was not for him, however. Soon he was playing the game of the sword with the McDonald's of Islay until a truce was patched by means of a marriage between the clans. There was peace for a time, but the trouble blazed anew over the matter of some lifted cattle, and they were at it again hammer and tongs. The royal policy seems to have been to permit these highland gamecocks to fight each other so long as they were fairly well matched. In this case, the various MacDonalds combined in such numbers against Latchel and MacLean that the king interfered and persuaded them to seek terms of reconciliation. Accordingly, the lord of MacDonalds journeyed to Dwart Castle with his retinue of bare-legged gentlemen and was hospitably received. Latchelin was canny as well as bra, and he clinched the terms of peace by first locking the visitors in a room whose walls were some twenty feet thick, and then holding as hostages the two young sons of Angus MacDonald. The high-tempered MacDonald was naturally more exasperated than pacified, and he turned the tables when Latchland soon after went to Islay to receive performance of the promises made touching certain lands in dispute. The Highland Code of Honor was peculiar, and that treachery appears to have been a weapon used without scruple. The MacDonald swore that not a MacLean should suffer harm, but no sooner had Latchland and his clansmen and servants arrived than they were attacked at night by a large force. The party would have been put to the sword, but that Latchland rushed into the midst of the foe, holding aloft one of MacDonald's sons as a shield. This caused postponement of the slaughter, MacDonald offering quarter if his child should be delivered to him. MacLeans were disarmed and bound, except two young men who had distinguished themselves by laying many a MacDonald low in the heather. These were beheaded at once. Beginning next morning, two MacLeans were led out and executed each day in the presence of their own chief, until no more than Latchland and his uncle were left. They were spared only because the sanguinary Angus MacDonald fell from his horse and was badly hurt before he could finish his program. 
It would be tiresome to relate much more of this ensanguined, interminable game of give-and-take, which was the chief business of the Highland clans in that century. The clan of McGeehan's, whose seat was at Ardnamurchan Castle on Mo, later sided actively with the MacDonalds, and the feud became three-cornered. Matchlin Moore McLean was no petty warrior, and his men were numbered by the thousand when he was in the prime of his power. Once he fell on the island of Islay and put to the sword as many as five hundred of his foes. All the men capable of bearing arms belonging to the clan Donald, says an old count. Angus himself was chased into his castle and forced to give over half of Islay to Latchland to save his skin. Now indeed there was a mustering of the MacDonalds from near and far to invade Mull. They gathered under chiefs of Kinter, Skye, and Islay, with the lesser clans under MacNeil of Giha and the MacAllisters of Loop, and the MacFees of Colonsay. Bold Latchland Moore McLean was outnumbered, but a singular stroke of luck enabled him to win a decisive battle. That MacDonald, who was called the Red Knight of Sleep, who was much disturbed and shaken by a dream, in which a voice chanted a very doleful prophecy, of which this is a sample. Dire are the deeds the fates have doomed on thee. Defeated by the sons of Gillian, the invading host shall be. On thee, Girnadub, streams of blood shall flow, and the bold Red Knight shall die. Ere a sword is sheathed. This message caused the Red Knight to sound the retreat soon after the fray began, and his example spread panic among the force which broke and ran for their boats, and the best MacDonald was he who first reached the beach. The claymores of the Maclean's hewed them down without mercy, and their heads were chopped off and thrown into a well which has since borne a Gallic name descriptive of the event. It would seem that these clans must have exterminated each other by this time. But the bleak moors and rocky slopes of these western islands bore a wonderful crop of fighting men, and soon the Maclean's were invading the coast of Lorne and spreading havoc among the MacDonald's great slaughter. Latchland found time also to seek vengeance on the McGeehan's for daring to meddle in his affairs. John McGeehan, chief of that smaller clan which owed fealty to the MacDonald's, had been a suitor for the hand of Latchland Moore McLean's mother who was a sister of the Earl of Carlisle, and had a fortune in her own right. Now the MacIan renewed his attentions, and Latchland looked on grimly, where that the motive was greed of golden lands. His mother gave her consent, but her two-fisted son made no objection until the MacIan came to Mole to claim his bride. The marriage was performed in the presence of Latchland and his most distinguished retainers, and there was a feast and much roaring conviviality. In the evening, the company being hot with wine, the rash McGeehan brought up the matter of the recent feud, and a pretty quarrel was brewing in a twinkling. Several of the McGeehans boasted that their chief had wed the old lady for the sake of her wealth. Drunkards ever tell the truth, flung back a McLean, with which he plunked a dirk into the heart of the tactless guest. Instantly the swords were flashing, but hardly a McGeehan came alive out of the banqueting hall. Latchland missed this melee for some reason or other. But coming on the scene a little later, he quoted in the Gallic a proverb which means, If the fox rushes upon the hounds, he must expect to be torn. His followers took it that he felt no sorrow at the fate of the McGeehan's, and forthwith they rushed into the chamber of the bridegroom, dragged him forth, and would have dispatched him. But the lamentations of Latchelin's mother for once moved her rugged son to pity, and he contented himself with throwing the chief of the McGeehan's into the dungeon of Dwart Castle. This happened in the summer of 1588, and affairs were in this wise when the galleon Florencia came sailing into Tobermory Bay. Her captain, Don Perea, was a fiery sea-fighter whom misfortune had not tamed. These savage highlanders were barbarians in his eyes, and he would waste no courtesy on them. 
There were several hundred Spanish soldiers in the galleon of the great army of troops which had been sent in the Armada to invade England, and Captain Perea thought himself in a position to demand what he wanted. He sent a boat ashore with a message to Achlin Moore McLean at his castle at Duart, asking that provisions be furnished him, and adding that in case of refusal or delay, he should take them by force. To this Latchin sent back the haughty reply that the wants of the distressed strangers should be attended to after the captain of the Spanish ship had been taught a lesson in courteous behavior. In order that the lesson might be taught him as speedily as possible, he was invited to land and supply his wants by the forcible means of which he boasted. It was not the custom of the chief of Maclean's to pay attention to the demands of a threatening and insolent beggar. At this it may be presumed that Captain Perea swore a few rounds of crackling oaths in his beard as he strode his high-pooped quarter-deck. His men who had gone ashore reported that the Maclean was an ill man to trifle with, and that he had best be let alone. Already the clan was gathering to repel a landing force from the galleon. The captain of the battered Florencia took wiser counsel with himself, and perceived that he had threatened over hastily. Pocketing his pride, he assured the ruffled Latchelon of the castle dwarf that he would pay with gold for whatever supplies might be granted him. Latchelon had other fish to fry, for the Macdonalds, exceedingly wroth at the scurvy treatment dealt that luckless bridegroom and alley, the chief of the McGeans, were up in arms and making ready to avenge the black insult. In need of men to defend himself, Latchelon McLean struck a bargain with the captain of a galleon. If Pariah should lend him a hundred soldiers from the Florencia, he would consider his service as part payment for the supplies and assistance desired. Away marched the contingent from the galleon in company with the McLean clansmen, and laid siege to the McKean castle of Mingory, after ravaging the small islands of Rum and Eag. Latchelon Moro was carrying all before him, burning, killing, plundering both MacDonalds and McKeans, and Captain Perea sent him word that a Florencio was ready to sail, and he should like to have his soldiers returned. To this McLean replied that the account between them had not been wholly squared. There was the matter of payment promised in addition to the loan of the soldiers. The people of Tobermary and thereabouts had sent grain and cattle aboard the galleon, and they must have their money before sailing day. Captain Perea promised that every satisfaction should be given before he left the country, and again requested that his hundred soldados be marched back to their ship. This Latchin was willing to do, but still suspecting the commander of the galleon as a wily bird, he detained three of the officers of the troops as hostages to assure final settlement. Then he sent on board the Florencia young Donald Glass, son of the Maclean of Morvern, to collect what was due and adjust the affair. No sooner had he set foot on deck than he was disarmed and bundled below by order of Perea, who considered that two could play at holding that form of collateral known as hostages. Now ensued a deadlock. Latchelin McLean refused to yield up his brace of Spanish officers unless the demands of his people were paid in full, while Captain Perea kept Donald Glass locked in a cabin and swore to carry him to sea. The tragedy which followed is told in the traditions of Mull to this day. When Donald Glass learned that he was kidnapped in the galleon, he resolved to wreak dreadful revenge for the treachery dealt his kinsmen. On the morning when the Florencia weighed anchor, an attendant who had been confined with him was sent on shore, and Donald sent word of his fell intention to the chief of the clan. Overnight, Donald Glass had discovered that only a bulkhead separated his cabin from the powder magazine of the galleon, and by some means, which tradition omits to explain, he cut a hole through the planking and laid a train ready for the match. Just before the Florencia weighed anchor, he was fetched on deck for a moment to take his last sight of the hearthy hills of Mole and Morburn. Then the captain was thrust back into his cabin, and with her great gay banners trailing from aloft, the galleon made sail and began slowly to move away from the shore of Tobermory Bay. 
It was then that Donald Glass, true McLean, was he, fired his train of powder, and bang, the magazine exploded. The galleon was torn asunder with terrific violence, and the bodies of her soldiers and mariners were flung far over the bay and even upon the shore. So complete was the destruction that only three of the several hundred Spaniards escaped alive. The Florencia had vanished in a manner truly epic, and proud were the Maclean's of the deed of young Donald Glass, who gave his life for the honor of his clan. One of the surviving traditions is that a dog belonging to Captain Perea was hurled ashore alive. The faithful creature, when it had recovered from its hurts, refused to leave that part of the strand nearest the wreck, and continued to howl most piteously by day and night as long as it existed, which was more than a year. The Spanish officers, who had remained as hostages in the hands of Latchland Moore McLean, were set at liberty by that sometimes courteous chief, and were permitted to proceed to Edinburgh, where they lodged complaint with the king touching the destruction of their galleon. The matter of Captain Perea having been disposed of in this explosive fashion, Latchland McLean returned to his main business of harrying the MacDonalds, and so fiercely and destructively was the feud conducted thereafter that King James thought it time to interfere lest he should have no subjects left in the western highlands. The warring chiefs were summoned to Edinburgh, imprisoned and fined, after which they made their peace with the king and returned to their island realms. The affair of the Florencia was named and the charges brought against Maclean. In the official records of Holyrood Palace, seat of the Scottish kings, is this information laid before the Privy Council on January 3, 1591 that in the preceding October, Latchland Maclean, accompanied with a great number of thieves, broken men, and of clans, besides the number of one hundred Spaniards, came to the properties of His Majesty, Cana, Rum, Egg, and the Isle of Eleanor, and after they had racked and spoiled the said islands, a treasonably raised fire, and in a most barbarous, shameful, and cruel manner, burnt the same island, with the men, women, and children there, not sparing the youths and infants, and at the same time came to the castle of Ardamarchan. He sieged the same and lay about the said castle three days, using in the meantime all kinds of hostilities and force, both fire and sword. The like barbarous and shameful cruelty has seldom been heard of among Christians in any kingdom or age. On the 20th of March, 1588, King James granted a remission to Latchelon McLean of Dwart for the cruel murder of certain inhabitants of the islands of Rum, Cana, and Egg, but from the remission was expected the plotting or felonious burning and flaming up by sulfurous powder of a Spanish ship and of the men and provisions in her near the island of Mo. Swift and tragic as was the fate of Captain Rhea and his ship's company, it was perhaps more merciful than that which befell the great squadron of galleons of the Armada. They were cast on the coast of Ireland, on the rocks of Clare and Kerry, Galloway Bay, and along the shores of Sligo and Donegal. More than thirty ships perished in this way, and of the eight thousand half-drowned wretches who struggled ashore, no more than a handful escaped slaughter at the hands of the wild Irish, who knocked them on the head with battle-axes or stripped them naked, and left them die of the cold. Many were Spanish gentlemen, richly clad with gold chains and rings, and the common sailors and soldiers had each a bag of ducats lashed to his wrist when he landed through the surf. They were slain for their treasure, and on one sand strip of Sligo an English officer counted eleven hundred bodies. In a letter to Queen Elizabeth, Sir E. Bingham, governor of Ulster, wrote of the wreckage of twelve armada ships which he knew of, the men of which ships did all perish in the sea, save the number of eleven hundred or upwards, which we put to the sword, amongst whom there were divers gentlemen of quality and service as captains, masters of ship, lieutenants, ensign bearers, other inferior officers, and young gentlemen to the number of some fifty, 
which being spared from the sword till others must be had from the Lord Deputy how to proceed against them. I had special directions sent to me to see them executed, as the rest were, only reserving alive one Don Luis de Cordova, and a young gentleman, his nephew, to your highness's pleasure be known. Alas, Elizabeth could not find it in her heart to spare even these two luckless gentlemen of Spain, and one judges those rude highlanders less harshly for their bloodthirsty feuds, and learning that the great queen herself ordered their immediate execution when she received the letter, and it was duly carried out. Frode, in his essay, the defeat of the Armada, comes to the defense of Elizabeth, or at least he pleads, extenuating circumstances. Most pitiful of all was the fate of those who fell into the hands of the English garrisons of Galloway and Mayo. Galleons had found their way into Galloway Bay. One of them had reached Galloway itself, who was half dead with famine and offering a cask of wine for a cask of water. Galloway townsmen were humane and tried to feed and care for them. Most were too far gone to be revived and died of exhaustion. Some might have recovered, but recovered they would have been danger to the state. The English in the west of Ireland were but a handful in the midst of a sullen, half-conquered population. The ashes of the Desmond Rebellion were still smoking, and Dr. Sanders and his Legantine Commission were fresh in the immediate memory. The defeat of the Armada in the Channel could only have been vaguely heard of. All that the English officers could have accurately known must have been that an enormous expedition had been sent to England by Philip to restore the Pope. The Spaniards, they found, were landing in thousands in the midst of them with arms and money, distressed for the moment, but sure, if allowed time to get their strength again, set cannot in a blaze. They had no fortress to hold so many prisoners, no means of feeding them, no more to spare to escort them to Dublin. They were responsible to the Queen's government for the safety to the country. The Spaniards had not come on any errand of mercy to her or hers. The stern order went out to kill them all, wherever they might be found, and two thousand or more were shot, hanged, or put to the sword. Dreadful? Yes, but war itself is dreadful, and has its own necessities. A quaint recital of the fate of these fleeing galleons is to be found in history published by order of Oliver Cromwell, with the title of Old England Forever, or Spanish Cruelty Displayed. One chapter runs as follows. Here followeth a particular account of the miserable condition of the Spanish fleet, fled to the north of Scotland, and scattered for many weeks on the sea coast of Ireland, written October 19, 1588. About the beginning of August, the fleet was, by tempest, driven beyond the Isles of Orkney, the place being above sixty leagues north latitude, so already mentioned, very unaccustomed climate for the young gallants of Spain, who did never before feel storms on the sea, nor cold weather in August, and about those northern islands, their mariners and soldiers died daily by multitudes, as their bodies cast on land did appear, and after twenty days or more, having passed their time in great miseries, they being desirous to return home to Spain, sailed very far southward into the ocean to recover Spain. But the Almighty, who always avenges the cause of his afflicted people, who put their confidence in him, and brings down his enemies, who exalt themselves to the heavens, ordered the winds to be violently contrarious to this proud navy, that it was with force, dissevered on the high seas to the west of Ireland, and so a great number of them were driven into divers dangerous bays, and upon rocks, all along the west and north parts of Ireland, in sundry places distant above a hundred miles asunder, and there cast away, some sunk, some broken, some run on sands, and some were burned by the Spaniards themselves. As in the north part of Ireland, toward Scotland, between the two rivers of Lough Foyle and Lough Sibley, nine were driven on shore, and many of them broke, and the Spaniards, forced to come to land, were succor among the wild Irish. 
In another place, 20 miles southwest from thence, in a bay called Boris, 20 miles northward from Galloway, belonging to the Earl of Ormond, one special great ship of 1,000 tons, with 50 brass pieces and four cannons, was sunk, and all the people drowned, saving 16 who by their apparel, as it is advertised out of Ireland, seem to be persons of great distinction. Then to come more to the southward, thirty miles upon the coast of Thomond, north from the river of Shannon, two or three more perished, whereof one was burned by the Spaniards themselves, and so driven to the shore. Another was of San Sebastian, wherein were three hundred men, who were also all drowned, saving sixty. Third ship, of all their lading, was cast away at a place called Brecon. In another place, opposite Sir Tirlow O'Brien's house, there was another great ship lost, supposed to be a galleass. The losses above mentioned were betwixt the 5th and 10th of September, as was advertised from sundry places out of Ireland. So as by account from the 21st day of July, when this navy was first beaten by the navy of England, until the 10th of September, being the space of seven weeks and more, it is very probable that said navy had never had one good day or night. That much treasure of gold and jewels and plate went down in these lost galleons, was the opinion of Scotch and Irish tradition, but these stories gained the greatest credence in the case of the Florencia of Tobermory Bay. She was said to have contained the paymaster's chest of the Armada, and to have carried to the bottom thirty million ducats of money, and the church plate of fabulous richness. It is certain that the Florencia was one of the largest galleons of the Armada, and that she never returned to Spain. Her armament comprised fifty-two guns, and her company numbered four hundred soldiers and eighty-six sailors. It is probable that this was the Florencia belonging to the Duke of Tuscany, which was refitted at Santander in September 1587, concerning which Lord Ashley wrote to Walsingham, after the destruction of the Armada, that she was commanded by a grandee of the first rank, who was always served on silver. While even now the most painstaking investigation is unable to find definite information regarding the amount of treasure lost in the galleon of Tobermory Bay, that she contained a vast amount of riches was believed as early as a half-century after her destruction. The papers of the great house of Argyll record the beginning of the search almost as far away as 1640. Of these fascinating documents, the first is the grant to the Marquis of Argyll and his heirs by the Duke of Lennox in Richmond, Lord High Admiral, with consent of King Charles I, of all rights and ownership in the wreck of the Florencia and her treasure. The deed of gift is dated from the court of St. Theobald, February 5, 1641 and proceeds upon the narrative that in the year 1588, when the great Spanish Armada was sent from Spain toward England and Scotland, and was dispersed by the mercy of God, there were divers ships and other vessels of the Armada, with ornaments, munition, goods, and gear, which were thought to be of great worth, cast away, and sunk to the sea ground on the coast of Mull, near Tobermary, in the Scots Sea, where they lay and still lie as lost, and that the Marquis of Argyll, near whose bounds the ships were lost, having taken notice thereof, made inquiries therefore and having heard some dockers and other experts in such matters state that they consider it possible to recover some of the ships and their valuables was moved to take and so caused pains to be taken thereupon at his own charges and hazard for this reason the great admiral with the king's consent gives grants and disposes to the marquis said ships ornaments munitions etc of the spanish armada and the entire profit that might follow or that he has already obtained therefrom with full power to the marquis his dockers seamen and others to search for the ships and intromit with them providing the marquis were accountable and made prompt payment to the duke of lennox and richmond of a hundredth part of the ships etc with deduction of the expenses incurred for the recovery parada in these words the crown assigned the treasure of the florencia to the house of argyle as part of its admiralty rights along that coast where marched the family estates 
1665, the ninth Earl of Argyll, son of him who had obtained ownership of the galleon, employed an expert diver and wrecker by the name of James Mauld to search for the treasure of ducats and plate. It was an attractive speculation for that notable docker, who was promised four-fifths of all the gold, silver, metal, goods, etc., recovered. And, incidentally, the Earl bound himself that the same James Mauld shall not be molested in his work, and that his workmen shall have peaceable living in these parts during their stay and traveling through the highlands and isles, and shall be free from all robberies, thefts, etc., so far as the said Earl can prevent the same. The said contract provides further lodging houses for the workmen at the usual rates, and is fixed to endure for three years after March 1st, 1666. These divers easily found the whole of Galleon, and they made a chart showing its exact bearings by landmarks on two sides of the bay. This ancient chart of the Spanish rack, as it is labeled, is owned by the present Duke of Argyll, and has been used by the modern treasure seekers, who are unable even with its aid to find the remains of the Florencia, so deeply have her timbers sunk in the tide-swept silt of the bay. The interest of the ninth Earl of Argyll in exploring the galleon was diverted by Monmouth's rebellion, in which luckless adventure he became an active leader. He was made prisoner and suffered the loss of his head, which abruptly snuffed out his romantic activities as a seeker after lost treasure. He left among his papers a memorandum concerning the galleon under the date of 1677, which states that the Spanish wreck ship was reputed to have been the Admiral Florence, one of the Armada of 1588, a ship of 56 guns with 30 million of money on board. It was burned and so blown up that two men standing upon the cabin were cast safe on shore. It lay in a very good road. Landlocked betwixt a little island and a bay in the Isle of Mull, a place where vessels ordinarily anchored free of any violent tide, with hardly any stream, a clean, hard channel, with a little sand on the top, and little or no mud in most places about, upon ten fathoms at high water, and about eight at ground ebb. The fore part of the ship above water was quite burned, so that from the mizzenmast to the foreship no deck was left. The hole was full of sand, and the Euro caused it to be searched a little without finding anything but a great deal of cannonball about the main mast and some kettles and tankers of copper and such like in other places. Over the hinge ship where the cabin was, there was a heap of great timber which it would be difficult to remove, but under this is the main expectation. The deck under the cabin was thought to be entire. The cannon lay generally at some yards of distance from the ship, from two to twenty. The Earl's father had the gift of the ship and attempted the recovery of it, but from want of skilled workmen he did not succeed. In 1666 the Lord of Melgham, James Mauld, who had learned the art of the diving bell in Sweden, and had made a considerable fortune by it, entered into a contract with the Earl for three years by which Melgham was to be at all the charge, and to give the Earl a fifth part of what was brought up. He wrought only three months, and most of the time was spent in mending his bells and sending for materials he needed, so that he raised only two brass cannon of a large caliber, but very badly fortified, and a great iron gun. After this, being invited to England, he wrought no more, thinking his trade a secret, and that the Spanish ship would wait for him. On the expiring of the contract, the Earl undertook to work alone, and, without the aid of anyone who had ever seen diving, recovered six cannon, one of which weighed nearly six hundred weight. The Earl afterwards entered into a contract with a German who undertook great things, and talked of bringing a vessel of forty guns, but instead brought only a yacht and recovered only one anchor, going away soon after, taking his gold with him and leaving some debt behind. The contract with the German has expired, and the Earl is provided with vessel, bells, ropes, and tongs, and with men to work by direction. Yet, although he is confident in his own understanding of the art of diving with the bell, he is willing to enter into a contract. 
He will disbone, rent, the vessel for three years, provided the contractor should keep four skilled men to work in seasonable weather from May 1st to October 1st. The Earl will furnish a ship of 60 or 70 tons with 12 seamen and give his partner a fifth part of the proceeds. If a crown were found, it was to be exempted from the division and presented to His Majesty. It is concluded that if the money expected be fallen upon, the fifth part will quickly pay all expenses and reward the ingenious artist, and if that fail, the canon will certainly repay the charges. There are also preserved articles of agreement, dated December 18, 1676, by which the Earl makes over a three-year concession to John St. Clair, minister at Hermanstown in Scotland, for himself, and as taking burden for his father, to search for the wreck on shares, the Earl reserving one-third part of what should be recovered during the first year, and one-half of what should be recovered during the last two years. It is also provided that, if the St. Clairs were disturbed during the first year, so as not to be able to work or raise the wreck without damage to their persons, by reason of the unsettled state of the country, the contract should be regarded as not taking effect for a year. The Earl binds himself to produce, before November 1st, 1676, his right to the ship under the Great Seal of Scotland at Edinburgh, and to deliver a copy of it to St. Clair's. John St. Clair, younger, binds himself to repair with all skill for its recovery and for the recovery of the valuables during the space of three years, and to make true account and payment of the shares above, reserved to the Earl and his heirs, etc. Lastly, both parties obliged themselves faithfully to observe all the articles of agreement under the liquidated penalty of 2,000 marks, Scots. The St. Clairs, or Sinclairs, as the name is spelled in other documents of the same tenor, assigned their rights and contract to one Hans Albrecht von Trauden, who was probably a German referred to by the Earl as taking his gold with him and leaving his debts behind. This document contains a fascinating mention of all that might be found in the water about the ship as gold, silver, bullion, jewels, etc., and sets forth a new scheme of division of the spoils. Now there appears Captain Adolfo E. Smith as a partner of Hans Albrecht von Trebelin, and one finds another parchment executed by the Earl who appears to have thought that these Dowkers would bear watching, for they are enjoined immediately on the recovery of the wreck to deliver on the spot to the Earl's factors or servants who are daily to attend the work and to be witnesses of what is recovered. Should the work be impeded by the violence of the country's people, it is provided that the term of contract might be lengthened. The repeated references to molestation by the inhabitants roundabout were aimed at the Clan MacLean. The great Latchland Moor had long since closed his stormy career, and, wrapped in his plaid, his bones were smoldering in a grave by Duart Castle. His kinsmen had good memories, however, and there was that debt for provisions which had been left owing by Captain Perea of the Florencia some eighty years before. It might seem that young Donald Glass had squared the account when he blew the galleon and her crew to kingdom come, but the Maclean's were men to nurse the embers of a feud and set the sparks to flying at the next opportunity. They held it that theirs was the first right to the wreck and cared not a rap for any documentary rights that might have been granted to the Campbells, the clan of the Earls of Argyle by the great Admiral of Scotland. Hector MacLean, brother of Latchland MacLean of Castle Torlesk near Tobermurray, rallied a force and drove the divers from the wreck. Then, in order that there might be no doubt about the views of the MacLeans, they built a small fort overlooking the bay and the scene of the wreck, the ruins of which still survive. There, a detachment was posted with orders to make it hot for any interlopers who might try to find the sunken treasure without first consulting the MacLeans. This interference found its way into the courts at Edinburgh in the form of a petition of grievances suffered by Captain Dolfo E. Smith, 
He swore before a notary that John McLean of Gunlachalan and John McLean, a servitor to Lachlan McLean of Torlusk, had convocated six or seven score of armed men, and he had exhibited to them a royal warrant bearing His Majesty's protection and free liberty, Captain Smith and his servants, to work at the wrecked ship at Tobermory, and prohibiting any of His Majesty's subjects from interrupting them. Captain Smith then required the McLeans to dissipate the armed men, part of whom were in a fort or trench at Tobermory, newly built by them for interrupting the work, and the rest in the place or houses adjacent, as John McLean of Kinlachalan acknowledged, and in his majesty's name required them to give him and his men liberty to prosecute their work at the wreck. Upon this, Kinlachalan answered that the men in arms were not commanded by him, but by Hector McLean, brother of Lachlan McLean of Torlisk, and others, and he declared that not only would Captain Smith and his men be hindered, but that the men in arms would shoot guns, muskets, and pistols at them, should any of them offer to duck or work at the wreck, whereupon Captain Smith, took this instrument, protesting against the aforesaid Maclean's and their accomplices, at Tobermory and Mole, 7 September, 1678. The militant and tenacious Maclean's struck terror to the heart of Captain Adolfo Smith, according to another official document called a notorial instrument at the instance of William Campbell, skipper to the Earl of Argyle's frigate called Anna of Argyle. This worthy sea-dog, it appears, as a procurator for the Earl, had compared, desired, and required Captain Dolfo E. Smith and his men to duck and work at the wreck ship, and to conform to the minutes of contract fixed the Earl and him, otherwise to give the bells, sinks, and other instruments necessary for ducking to William Campbell and the men on board the Earl's frigate, who would duck them without any regard to the threatenings of the Maclean's. Notwithstanding this, Captain Smith and his men refused to duck and work, or to give over the bells, etc., necessary for the work to william campbell who thereupon as procurator for the earl of argyle asked and took instruments and protested against captain smith for cost scathe and damage conformed to the contract the instrument was taken by donald mckellar in the republic at and aboard the yacht belonging to captain adolfo e smith lying in the bay of tobermory in mull seven september sixteen seventy eight the wreck of the galleon was fought over about this time, not only by the meddlesome Macleans, but also by the Duke of York, as Lord High Admiral of Scotland and the Isles, succeeding in that office the Duke of Lennox. He challenged the rights of the House of Argyle to the Florencia and her treasure, and instituted legal proceedings in due form which were decided in favor of the defendant, thereby confirming for all time the possession of the wreck, which belongs to the present Duke of Argyle. The verdict read in part as follows. The rights, reasons, and allegations of the parties, and the gifts and ratifications therein, referred to, produced by Archibald, Earl of Argyle, being at length heard and seen, the Lords of Council in session, assolized the said Archibald, Earl of Argyle, from the hail points, and articles of the summons libeled, or precept intended and pursued against him, at the instance of said William Eggman, procurator fiscal of the Admiralty, before said Lord High Admiral and his deputies, and decreed and declared him quit and free thereof in all time coming, dated 27th July 1677. It comes into the story during the lifetime of the Ninth Earl, the figure of Sir William Satcherval, governor of the Isle of Man, who was interested as a partner in one of the several concessions granted. He had left an account of his voyage to Mole in the year 1672, printed shortly after the event, in which he not only records sundry efforts to fish up the treasure, but gives also a lively and vivid picture of the primitive highlander on his native heather. About twelve o'clock, 
He wrote, We made the sound of bow. We saluted the castle of Duart with five guns, and they returned three. I sent in my penance for the boats, and things you had left there, and in the evening we cast anchor in the bay, Taubermur, which for its bigness is one of the finest and fastest in the world. The mouth of it is almost shut up with a little woody island called the Calve, the opening to the south not passable for small boats at low water, and that to the north barely musket shot over. To the landward, it is surrounded with high mountains covered with woods, pleasantly intermixed with rocks, and three or four cascades of water which throw themselves from the top of the mountain with a pleasure that is astonishing, all of which together make one of the oddest and most charming prospects I ever saw. Italy itself, with all the assistance of art, can hardly afford anything more beautiful and diverting, especially when the weather was clear and serene. To see the divers sinking three score foot under water and stay sometimes above an hour, and at last returning with the spoils of the ocean, whether it were plate or money, it convinced us of the riches and splendor of the once thought invincible armada. This raised a variety of ideas, and a soul as fond of novelty as mine. Sometimes I reflected with horror on the danger of the British nation, sometimes with pleasure on that generous courage and conduct that saved the sinking state and sometimes was so great an enterprise baffled and lost by accidents unthought of and unforeseen. For the first week the weather was pleasant, but spent in fitting our engines, which proved very well, and every way suited to the design, and our divers outdid all examples of this nature. But with the dog days, the autumnal rains usually begin in these parts, and for six weeks we had scarce a good day. The whole frame of nature seemed inhospitable, bleak, stormy, rainy, windy, so that our divers could not bear the cold, and despairing to see any amendment of weather, I resolved on a journey across the Isle of Moe to the so much celebrated Second Column Kill in English St. Column's Church. The first four miles we saw but few houses, but crossed a wild desert country, with a pleasant mixture of woods and mountains. Every man and thing I met seemed a novelty. I thought myself entering upon a new scene of nature, but nature rough and unpolished in her undress. I observed the men to be large-bodied, stout, subtile, active, patient of cold and hunger. There appeared in all their actions a certain generous air of freedom, and contempt of those trifles, luxury and ambition, which we so servilely creep after. They bound their appetites by their necessities, and their happiness consists not in having much, but in coveting little. The women seemed to have the same sentiments as the men, though their habits were mean, and they had not our sort of breeding. Yet in many of them there was a natural beauty, and a graceful modesty, which never fails of attracting. The usual outward habit of both sexes is the plaid. The woman is much finer, the colors more lively, and the squares larger than the men's, and put me in a mind of the ancient picts. This serves them for a veil and covers both head and body. The men wear theirs after another manner. When designed for ornament, it is loose and flowing, like the mantles our painters give their heroes. Their thighs are bare with brawny muscles, a thin brogue on the foot, short buskin of various colors on the leg, tied above the calf with a stripped pair of garters. On each side of a large shot pouch hangs a pistol and a dagger, a round target on their backs, blue bonnet on their heads, and in one hand a broadsword and a musket in the other. Perhaps no nation goes better armed, and I assure you they will handle them with bravery and dexterity, especially the sword and target, as our veteran regiments found to their cost at Killy Cranky. Although Sir William Sedgeville, he of the vassal pen and the romantic temper, brought no Spanish treasure to light, he helped us to see those fighting Macleans and Macdonalds as they were in their glory, and his description was written almost two and a half centuries ago. The Spanish rack was handed down from one chief of the Campbell clan to another as part of the estate, until in 1740 John, the second Duke of Argyll, decided to try his luck and employed a diving bell, by which means a magnificent bronze cannon was recovered. 
It has since been kept at Inverie Castle, the seat of the Dukes of Argyll, as an heirloom greatly esteemed. This elaborately wrought piece of ordnance, almost eleven feet in length, bears the arms of Francis I of France, for whom it was cast at Fontainebleau, and the fleur-de-lis. It was probably captured from Francis at the Battle of Pavia during his invasion of Italy, and the Spanish records state that several of such cannon were put on a vessel contributed to the Armada by the state of Tuscany. At the same time, a large number of gold and silver coins were found by the divers, and the treasure-seeking was thereby freshly encouraged. Modern experts in wrecking and salvage have agreed that the crude apparatus of those earlier centuries was inadequate to combat the difficulties of exploring a wreck of the type of the Florencia Galleon, built as she was of great timbers of the iron-like African oak, which today is found to be staunch and unrotted, after a submersion of more than three hundred years. The diving bells of those times were dangerous and clumsy and easily capsized. The men worked from inside them by thrusting out hooks and tongue-like appliances, and dared venture no deeper than eight fathoms, or less than fifty feet. In other words, the treasure might be in the galleon, but it was impossible to find and bring it up. For another century and more, Florencia was left undisturbed till about forty years ago. The present Duke of Argyll, then Marquis of Lorne, considered it his family duty to investigate the bottom of Tobermory Bay, his curiosity being pricked at finding the ancient chart and other documents already quoted among the archives stored in Inveray Castle. More for sport than for profit, he sent down a diver who found a few coins, pieces of oak, and a brass stanchion, after which the owner bothered his head no more about these phantom riches for some time. In 1903, or 315 years after the Florencia found her grave in Tobermory Bay, a number of gentlemen of Glasgow, rashly speculative for Scots, formed a company and subscribed a good many thousands of dollars to equip and maintain a treasure-seeking expedition by modern methods. The Duke of Argyll, like his ancestors before him, was ready to grant permissions to search the wreck of the galleon for a term of years, conditioned upon a fair division of the spoils. He let them have the chart, without which no treasure hunt deserves the name, and all the family papers dealing with the Florencia. In charge of the operations was placed Captain William Burns of Glasgow, a hard-headed and vastly experienced wrecker who had handled many important salvage enterprises for the marine underwriters in seas near and far. The contrast between this 20th century syndicate with its steam dredges and electric lights in that primitive age when the Macleans were harassing Captain Adolfo Smith from their fort beside the bay is fairly astonishing. The gentlemen of Glasgow were not moved by sentiment, however, and soon Captain Burns was spending their money in a preliminary survey of the waters and the sands where the galleon was supposed to be. Although the ancient chart was explicit in its bearings, and these were made when men were living who had seen part of the wreck above tide, Locating the Florencia proved to be a baffling puzzle. During the first season, 1903, divers and lighters were employed in this work of searching, but the salvage consisted of no more than another bronze cannon loaded with a stone ball, several swords, scabbards, and blunderbusses, a gold ring, and some fifty doubloons bearing the names of Ferdinand and Isabella and Don Carlos. Two years later, in 1905, the work was fairly begun with costly equipment, the bottom of the bay was photographed and a mound of sand revealed, which, it was concluded, covered the surviving part of the galleon. Digging into this bank, the divers found many curious trophies, among them more arms and munitions, bottles of canteens, boarding pikes, copper powder pans, and other small furniture, much corroded and encrusted. It was surmised that the vessel lay with her stern cocked up, and that in this end, indicated by the swelling of the sandbank, treasure was hidden. Powerful suction pumps, 
worked by steam, were set going to clear away this bank, and they bored into it steadily for three weeks while the divers dug shafts to clear away obstructions. At length, a massive silver candlestick was fetched up, and sand pumps clanked more industriously than ever. At the end of the summer, about 100 square feet of the bank had been removed, but the whereabouts of the galleon was by no means certain. As soon as the weather became favorable in the following spring, Captain Burns and his crew returned to the quest with more men and machinery than before. It was really impossible that such a business as this could be carried on without some touch of the fantastic and the picturesque. There now intrudes a Mr. Cossar, employed as the famous expert, who by means of delicate apparatus can indicate where metal or wood is buried in any quantity underground, and he spent the summer taking observations and buoying the bay with floats or markers. At these places, boring was carried on by means of steel rods to a depth of 140 feet, while the dredges were busy exploring the vicinity of the sandbank. The area thoroughly explored was increased to eight acres in 1906, in water from seven to fourteen fathoms deep. That famous expert, Mr. Cossar, and his delicate apparatus were reinforced by Mr. John Steers of Yorkshire, one of the most notable diviners of England. He operated with no more apparatus than a hawthorn twig and professed to be able to locate precious metals no matter how many fathoms deep. And more than this, miserable Dick, too, to tell you whether it was gold or silver or copper that made his inspired twig twist and bend in his fingers. Mr. Steers was taken as seriously as Mr. Kosar had been, and the findings of one confirmed the verdicts of the other. Powerful salvage steamer Bremer, with a large crew, searched where the diviner told him to go, and several pieces of silver plate were recovered amid the excitement of all hands. The Bremer continued work in 1907, but during the next year the waters of Tobermary Bay were unvexed by the treasure seekers. Then the syndicate went into its pockets for more cash, got its second wind, so to speak, and wrapped its operations in a cloud of secrecy. Quite the proper dodge for a venture of this kind. A new and taciturn crew was hired for the Bremer, and whatever was found underwater was hidden from prying eyes. The additional funds raised amounted to $15,000. Captain Burns was told to obtain the best equipment possible. It was reported in the autumn of that year that Mr. Kosar, a mineral expert, by whose skill the scope of the operations was more or less controlled, had broken down in health owing to the severe strain, and had gone home to recruit. But John Steers of Yorkshire, with his hawthorn twig, was still finding treasure, which refused to be found by divers. This five-year concession from the Duke of Argyll had expired and was renewed by a syndicate organized in London, the manager of a Colonel K. M. Foss, an American, who appeared in Tomermary and conveyed an impression of cocksure Yankee hustle. He announced that his agents were making historical researches in the libraries and museums of Europe and had already convinced him that the Lost Galleon was crammed with treasure and that the chart relied on past searches was all wrong and expressed his surprise that the extensive salvage operations of recent years should have failed to locate the exact position of the wreck. In a word, Scotchmen might know a thing or two, but your up-to-date Yankee was the man who cracked another the Lost Florencia and deftly extract the colonel. The appearance of this Colonel Foss in his storied landscape of Tobermory Bay has a certain humorous aspect. He hardly seems to belong in the ensemble of the search for the treasure galleon, which has been carried on for centuries. This entertaining American may perhaps have unearthed information hitherto unknown, but the fact is worth some stress that all previous investigations had failed to prove beyond doubt that the Florencia bore from Spain the thirty millions of money reputed to have been stowed in her lazarette 
an ancient document known as the Confession of Gregory de Sotomayor of Melgaco in Portugal. It contains a list of the treasure ships of the Armada. He was with the fleet in the galleon, Nuestra Senora del Rosario, commanded by Dom Pedro de Valdez, and he goes on to say, To the sixth question concerning what treasure there was in the fleet, I said there was great stories of money in plate, which came in the galleon wherein the Duke of Medina was, the San Martin, and in the ship of Dom Pedro de Valdez, which was taken, and in the Admiral of the Galleons, the San Lorenzo, and in the Galley Royal, the Capitana Royal, and in the Vice Admiral, wherein was Juan Martinez de Recalde, the Santa Ana, and in the Vice Admiral, whereof was General Diego, the San Cristobal, and in the Vice Admiral of the Pinnacles, Enes de Pilar de Catagoza, and in the Vice Admiral of the Hulks, the Grand Griffon, and in the Venetian ship, in which came General Don Alonso de Leña. The report goeth that this ship brought great stores of treasure, for that there came in her the Prince of Asquilly and many other noblemen. This is all I know touching the treasure. The name of the Florencia does not appear herein, yet the report of her vast riches was current in the western highlands no more than one lifetime after the year of the Armada. The men of solid business station and considerable capital can be found today to charter wrecking steamers, divers, dredges, and what not. To continue this enterprise proves that romance is not wholly dead. In the town of Tobermory, the busy mysterious parties of treasure seekers, as they come year after year with their impressive flotilla of apparatus, furnish endless diversion and conjecture. People will tell you, in the broad English of the Highlander, and in the Gaelic, even more musical, as it survives among the western islands, the legend of the beautiful Spanish princess who came in the Florencia and was wooed and won by a bold Maclean. And they will show you the old mill whose timbers, still staunchly standing, were taken from the wreck of the galleon. In Mull, and oftener among the islands further seaward and toward the Irish coast, are to be found black-eyed and black-haired men and women, not of the pure Celtic race, and whose blood is the distant strain bequeathed by those ancestors who married shipwrecked Spanish sailors of the Armada. And perhaps among them are descendants of these two or three seamen who were hurled ashore alive, when the Florencia was destroyed by the hand of young Donald Glass McLean. In quaint Tobermory, whose main street nestles along the edge of the bay, the ancient foemen, McLeans and McDonald's, tend their shops side by side, and it seems as if almost every other signboard bore one of these clan names. If you would hear the best talk of the galleon and her treasure, it is wise to seek the tiny grocery and ship chandlery of Captain Cole MacDonald, a gentle white-bearded man, so slight of stature and mild of mind and speech that you are surprised to learn that for many years he was master of a great white-winged clipper-ship of the famous city line of Glasgow in the days when this distinction meant something. Now he has come back to spend his latter days in this tranquil harbor and the spin-yarns of many seas. The scour of the tide has settled the wreck of the galleon many feet in the sand, he told me. I can show you on a chart what the old bearings were, as they were handed down from one generation to the next. But Captain Burns is not sure that he has yet found her. The money is there, I have no doubt. There was a bark in the bay not long ago, and when she pulled up anchor, a Spanish doubloon was sticking into one fluke. Mr. Steers, the Yorkshireman with the divining rod, did some wonderful things, but the treasure was not found. To test him... 
Bags of silver and gold and copper money were buoyed under the water in the bay with no marks to show. It was done by night and he was kept away. He went out in a boat next morning and was rowed around a bit and wherever the metal was hid under water, his twig told him, without a mistake. More than that, he knew what kind of metal it was under the water. And how was that? I asked of Captain Carl MacDonald. He would hold a piece of gold money in each hand when the twig began to twist and dip. If the gold was under the water, the twig would pull with a very strong pull, so that he knew. If it was undecided, like, he would hold silver money, and the twig told him the proper message. I watched him working many a time, and it was very wonderful. But he did not find the treasure, I ventured to observe. Ah, lad, it was no fault of his, returned the old gentleman. The Spanish gold is scattered far and wide over the bottom of the bay. I have no doubt Donald Glass McLean did a very thorough job when he blew the galleon to hell. The present Duke of Argyle, brother-in-law of the late King Edward, bears among the many and noble and resonant titles that are by his inheritance, several which recall the earlier pages of the history of the clan Campbell, brave days of the feudal highlands and the ancient rites in the Armada Galleon of Tobermory Bay. He is Baron Inverie, Moe, Movern, and Terry, 29th Baron of Lachau, with the Celtic title of Clane Moore, Chief of the Clan Campbell, from Sir Colin Campbell, knighted in 1286, Admiral of the Western Coast and Islands, Marquis of Larne and Kinte, Keeper of the Great Seal of Scotland, and of Castles of Dunstaffnage, Dunoon, and Carvick, Hereditary High Sheriff of the County of Argyll. He once explained how the ownership of the Florencia Galleon came to his family by means of the ancient grant already quoted. The Campbells held the admiralty rights of the coast of Mole at the time of the Armada, and any wreck was lawfully theirs for this reason. The document was simply a formal confirmation of these rights. The Florencia was flotsam and jetsam to be taken by whatever chiefs held the rights of admiralty. A case involving the salmon fishing rights of the Scottish River was recently decided by virtue of a charter of admiralty rights granted by Robert de Bruce, who ruled and fought 600 years ago. In order to complete the documentary links of this true story of the Armada Galleon, it may be of interest to quote from a letter recently received by the author from the present Duke of Argyle, in which he says, The Galleon was a ship furnished by Tuscany as her contribution to the Armada. She was called the Florencia, or City of Florence, and was commanded by Captain Perea, a Portuguese, and had a crew largely Portuguese on board. We have found specimens of his plate with the Perea arms engraved on the plate border. She carried breech-loading guns on her upper deck, and you will see one of them at the Blue Coat School, now removed from London to the suburbs. On the lower deck were some guns got from Francis I at the Battle of Pavia. I have a very fine one at Inverary Castle, got from the wreck in 1740. Diving with a diving bell was commenced in 1670 and discontinued on account of civil troubles. Perea foolishly took part in local clan disputes, helping the Maclean's of Mull against the Macdonalds. One of the Macdonalds, when a prisoner on board, is said to have blown up the vessel as she was warping out of the harbor. I found an old plan and located the Spanish rack from the plan, but only sent a man down once from a yacht. There was little obtained during the last divings, cannonballs, timber, a few pieces of plate, small articles, about seventy dollars, etc. Yours faithfully, Argyle, Kensington Palace, 
April 25, 1910. End of chapter 7